Broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studios in Phoenix, Arizona, it's time for Phoenix Business Radio, spotlighting the city's best businesses and the people who lead them. Welcome to Phoenix Business Radio, broadcasting live from the Business Radio X studio inside Max 6 Conscious Workspace and the home of Conscious Capitalism Arizona, where we help build businesses and connect you with the right people. I'm your host, Karen Nowicki, and I'd like to welcome you to the launch of AZ TechCast, sponsored by the Arizona Technology Council. AZ TechCast is dedicated to covering innovation and the technology in Arizona and beyond. Through the art of the connected conversation, AZ TechCast guests will share their expertise, success stories, news and analysis about the region's leading startups, companies, and emerging technologies, as well as the latest industry trends and critical issues propelling the state's growing technology ecosystem. Broadcasted monthly, the goal of AZ TechCast is to have real leaders having real conversations about what's happening in the technology sector across the state of Arizona. And I'd like to thank AZ TechCast underwriter Phoenix Analysis and Design Technologies, also known as PADT, a globally recognized provider of numerical simulation, product development, and 3D printing. This Tempe-based company is comprised of experienced engineers, salespeople, technicians, and administrators who apply knowledge, enthusiasm, and a win-win approach to everything they do. PADT helps those who make things make them better. They make innovation work. So again, thank you, PADT, for your generous support of the Tech Council's new podcast series, AZ TechCast. So with that, I would like to introduce you to today's innovative group who will be sharing some insight into what Arizona's science and technology industry is doing to support our community in addressing this pandemic that we're all dealing with right now. These are just a few of the many Arizona companies that have stepped up and are making a difference in the fight against COVID-19. And so with that, I welcome Steve Zalstra, President and CEO of Arizona Technology Council. Welcome back, Steve. Thank you. It's great to be here again. So great to have you. And Eric Miller, thank you as well for being here again. Eric is the principal and co-owner of PADT, who also is underwriting this series today. Welcome, Eric. Well, thank you very much for having me. It's always like to talk about this stuff. Yes, and it's always great to have your insight and contribution. We also have Dr. Boris Rice, and he is joining us from Tucson, Arizona. Although if you could see us via video, you'd see that he's also playing with his screen behind us and has a fantastic uh, cockpit as well as image of space. Welcome to the show, Dr. Boris. Welcome. I wish our viewers, our listeners actually, could see your screen behind you. It's it's been (laughs) fantastic, a lot of fun. And also with us, uh, and I believe from Tucson today as well, is Dr. Sai. Uh, Partha Sarthari. I, I, I took a stab at that, but I can't promise I did it justice. Did I do your name okay, doctor? Uh, you did. Thanks for having me. Oh, we're thrilled to have you. And you are connecting with us uh, in Tucson as well. Is that correct? That's right. Very good. Well, I am just here to be in listening. I'm here to learn everything I can from each of you. We always like to say that this is nothing more than a conversation. I want you each to be sharing your knowledge and wisdom. Let's start by having each of you uh, just let our listening audience know who you are and the organization that you represent, and then we'll get into the meat of today's topic. Eric, would you mind kicking it off for us? Yeah. So my name is Eric Miller. I'm one of the owners of a company called PADT, which we've talked about already today. My position in the company is really leading up the consulting team as well as a lot of the marketing and HR and a lot of the overhead type activities, facilities and things like that, and helping the company grow and be successful. And with the 
current situation really focused on uh, making sure our employees are in addition safe and of, and, and as efficient as possible in the circumstances that we're working under. Uh, yeah. So yeah, Steve, if you can introduce yourself as well as Arizona Technology Council. Yeah, I'm Steve Zastra, President and CEO of the Arizona Technology Council. We're a statewide uh, trade association representing technology-based companies across the state. I also head up the uh, SciTech Institute, which is our foundation and happens to be located in Max 6. We are thrilled to have SciTech Institute here, and they do their series with us, uh, STEM Unplugged, which is a fantastic series. And Boris, tell us a little bit about yourself and, and what you do with University of Arizona. My name is Boris Ries. I'm an assistant professor at the College of Public Health. I'm an expert, or my expertise is on exposure assessment and controls at the occupational environment. I'm a certified industrial hygienist and I'm um, assessing exposures and controls for all different types of uh, scenarios from chemical, physical to biological exposures. We are honored to have you today. I know that you're going to bring a lot of important information into this conversation and, and a unique uh, a unique approach as well. And Sai, uh, tell us a little bit about you as well. Hi, um, I'm a professor of medicine. I do research in pulmonary critical care and sleep medicine. I'm here at the University of Arizona College of Medicine, Tucson. And uh, we're doing some research which uh, relates to respiratory assist devices, so ventilators uh, that I believe would be pertinent to the discussions today. Excellent. I think a really great place to start would be just to check in with each of you and just briefly speak to how are you uh, personally, if you'd be willing to, and professionally adjusting to this quarantine and what tends to have you excited and what has you concerned, if you'd be willing to share that. Let's start with Steve, if you would. Sure. Well, uh, I think professionally, uh, we've all adjusted pretty well. We're all working from home, been able to convert a lot of our events that are normally face-to-face to uh, virtual events. And I think we've had three this week, not including this podcast. You know, it's nice to be home with my wife and kids and to see them uh, more often than I normally would. I'm excited about this ending. <laughs> whenever that might be, uh, looking forward to getting back to whatever the new normal is. I am concerned about how long this will last uh, based on its impact on our state's economy. I spoke to the studio partners for Business Radio X in Atlanta this morning, and their governor, I believe today was the first day that they lifted the quarantine. And, and from their perspective, it sounded like it was, you know, kind of the Band-Aid got ripped off with some suggestions around, you know, what to do and how to show up and which businesses could reopen. Uh, but there was a lot of concern about what that's going to look like. So I know that they're feeling that they are, they're the, the state to watch uh, the next couple of days. Eric, how are you holding up and, and what... Uh, what are some of the highlights and maybe even some of the concerns that you're seeing? You know, I, I'm doing extremely well, everything considered. I mean, I, I can't, I, I sometimes I complain about something like the fact that I have to go downstairs to get coffee. <laughs> and I realize how pathetically uh, unimportant that is compared to what some people are dealing with. So, you know, I'm healthy. My family's healthy. I'm home. Uh, all of our employees are healthy. They're, if they can work from home, they're working from home. And those of our employees that are, critical and have to work in the office. We've got them set up in a safe environment. So, you know, professionally and personally doing really well, uh, no complaints, you know, business is, is surreal. 
we're seeing some business grow and other business, the most common response to questions these days from our customers is, call me in June and let's see what's going on. So a lot of delay, uh, not a lot of stopping, but a lot of delay. So I think we're, everybody's kind of in the same boat and adapting. What I'm excited about is really the enthusiasm and passion of which many people are attacking this problem and trying to find some way that they can help. Whether that's you know going down uh, the, the street from where you are at Fabric and and donating there so they can sew things, or we'll talk about more you know people using their kids' three D printer to make components, or large corporations you know retooling their assembly line in order to make things. So that's the thing that excites me. What concerns me is we got hit by this and we have not done well. I mean the numbers are not good. We have a lot of fatalities uh, compared to other countries with smaller populations. Um, so, you know, we've got to do some soul searching when this is done. We were the people that, that other countries used to look to about how to get stuff done, how to deal with crises in an effective and efficient manner, in a, in a manner with heart. We didn't do that this time. So I think we really, when this is all done, we need to really look back and see where did we, where did we get off the path of, you know, what we used to be really good at. Yeah, really well said. Sai, how about you? To me, I would, um, you know, mirror some of the sentiments that Eric just mentioned. Um, I wanted to say that uh, to me, the silver lining in all of this, uh, which we try to look for silver linings here, is the teamwork and togetherness that is exhibited by everybody. You know, I'm a, a researcher, but I'm also a practicing physician. And because both, my, uh, both myself and my wife are our physicians, uh, we weren't able to get to some of these uh, stores early in the morning to get the first consignment of certain necessary products. And uh, our friends pitched in. They were concerned about us, and uh, they queued up in line, and uh, they took care of us. That kind of camaraderie and togetherness, both uh, in the community as well as in science, where never met a lot of uh, researchers um in University of Arizona, even though we are in the same zip code, code and code. And um, um, I met a lot of individuals in College of Engineering, and we embarked on a, a, a research project. Interestingly, the COVID is a pulmonary infection, and it puts people in the ICU, both of which um, are in my area of expertise. And so we've been, pretty much our world has been upended in terms of how we normally do understand processes versus the new paradigm of this disease and how we are trying to understand this particular, you know, disease process. And uh, so those are all the exciting elements. Um, the things I'm concerned about is, uh, you know, I'm concerned about the health and well-being of our community and the broader community of uh, the nation, as well as the pandemic setting of uh, certain emerging economies and um perhaps third world countries, because they don't have the wherewithal that we have. And I'm just concerned about the human calamity that this would uh, pose, not just to us in the U.S., uh, but also to other uh, nations where there's a lot of poor uh, individuals who don't have the means and wherewithal. But uh, at the end of the day, uh, just go back to what Eric just uh, highlighted, is that the teamwork and the togetherness, uh, I think, is what will take us through. And uh, we do need to look back at uh, the playbook to see how we got so flat-footed um, early on and how we can prevent this from happening in the future. 
So well said. Thank you. And I purposely uh, uh, left Boris to kind of wrap that up for us, because once you have an opportunity to share with us your excitement, if that's an appropriate word, and your concerns, I'd also, if you would be willing to uh, have you talk a little bit about the science uh, behind COVID. So I I think the I see really only one silver lining at this point, and this is um, I'm mirroring the same with Eric and Sai said. It's the teamwork and the working togetherness, despite being online all the time. There seems to be a real sense out there that we we can still uh, work together. For myself professionally, I have a lot more work than before. Um, I have a laboratory um, at one point, um, a class at a teacher's laboratory. This has to be all transferred online. Teaching continues, and it's more difficult. We have to come up with extra work. Um, the students are often uh, very concerned. Uh, they don't understand what's going on. And so we have to spend a lot of time extra with them to ensure that we are still working towards their graduation. In terms of the professional side, and I think this leads into your question, my starting with the concern is the seriously lack of capacity to deal with the uh, crisis in the United States in particular. Uh, there are several other countries, there have not many, uh, they have been prepared um, and there have been, um, uh, there's been one country, I think in particular New Zealand, that has been able to decide very quickly what needs to be done and then just did it. Um, they have daily numbers of 50 people and less, uh, I think, um, and according to their outbreak numbers, they're pretty much over it. I'm very concerned in the United States that, we, uh, that there's a sense out, oh, we are through it. We're not even halfway through it. I think uh, we need to tying down further the quarantine and take it more seriously. It's the last thing we need to take the bandage off right now. Um, and I would think um, maybe another five, six weeks, this is what would be appropriate. Um, and this is mainly because the control mechanisms that we have in place, um, we, we don't have a lot of choices. And so in terms of the science of the controls and background, I'm thinking in terms of my field that thinks in terms of a control hierarchy. And so the first part is elimination, second substitution, engineering controls is third, administrative control is fourth. And then the very lower end is PPE. And at the very end of the PPE, at the very bottom, the last line of defense, and it should be avoided at all means, is the N95. And the focus right now is, this is uh, what I see is a lot about the focus that we work on on those sides. And all of this starts, the selection of the appropriate controls starts with um, an exposure assessment. A lot of the personal protective equipment is mostly vetted for chemical exposures. And so um, a lot of times we're dealing with how much people still get exposed to once they're using PPE because it's only a barrier that reduces the exposure. The problem is biological material is that even very small amounts passing through could be disastrous um, because there's still growth possible. I also am very concerned a lot of companies starting a startup with the personal protective equipment. Um, there's a very, the personal protective equipment that's needed to deal with viruses, it's very sophisticated. It is very difficult and tedious and also expensive, relatively speaking, uh, if you don't consider the life of people. Uh, to actually assess uh, personal protective equipment. Um, it may look like uh, something that's been copied uh, that we find on the internet. Um, there's, a, in my opinion, a very bad design going out from the University of Florida. Uh, it just looks like um, 
approved um, um, respirators and it's been proposed aside, but uh, I've seen now unpublished data where the material is not functional. I have a lot of concerns here at this point. What I'm trying to do is like um, helping people to understand where this effort should be taken care of and providing them uh, with maybe some technical information. Uh, in terms of the science, I think um, the, I mean, NIOSH has been warning, uh, had uh, documents out in 2016 um, that clearly indicated that we were not prepared. And I think um, there's a lot of very good technical people out there. There's a lot of very good solutions out there. At the end of the day, it's, I think it's the willingness that we actually put money into those solutions and uh, following through this. This is not new. We have solutions and they're available and it should never have happened what happens uh, right now in terms of outbreak. We were just waiting way too long to decide. Uh, we were not willing to prepare appropriately. So there's a couple of my thoughts. In, in terms of personal, I'm now in week five, home quarantine. I've left not my apartment in five weeks, essentially for a run to a, um, the garbage. And I think that's an appropriate behavior. We should not be outside. There's uh, studies now done hovering viruses in the air, uh, duration, uh, we need to minimize um, other uh, contact with other people. And I think we are not even halfway through it. Thank you so much for that. Right. Yeah, appreciate it. And I would love to open it up to uh, all of you for a discussion and conversation around the things that have been shared. One thing that strikes me, you know, as a as a mother of a 12-year-old and, and a 23-year-old who flew home from New York right before we kind of went on lockdown, uh, my little guy keeps asking, you know, why can't he have sleepovers like everybody else? <laughs> I don't know who he's talking to, but as a funny side note, I'm the only parent, just so you know, in the entire world. World that actually made him do uh, schoolwork before the school district <laughs> assigned work. Right? So now you understand what I'm dealing with. But but uh, to to your point, Boris, I I've been taking this quite seriously. I see some folks, you know, through social media and my own uh, circles that I run in that are taking it quite serious, and and others who don't. And and we're faced with I think that lack of leadership. We're, we can be blessed with the internet, of course, and our online technology, as I pointed out, because it is helping keep us together. But, you know, Google is not always the best source or whatever source you're going to for information on something like this. Uh, it's almost like becoming a parent for the first time. You, you could read three different books and those books are all going to tell you something differently. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to sit back and, and uh, be a listener now for the next several moments. Let's open it up to whoever would like to uh, speak to what's on their heart and their mind to share right now for our listeners. I'll, I'll follow up on something that Boris said that I think is really important. Um, so PADT is is one of the leading 3D printing uh, resources as well as reseller of equipment in, in the Southwest. And so when this thing happened, a lot of people were like, I can't get respirators. I can't get these N95 masks. I will 3D print them. You can't. There's one approved design in an emergency situation when there's no other alternative. Um, and that's that's it. Otherwise, you're putting people at risk by printing these these masks, the thing that actually goes and covers your face. Um, and 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 it it really was difficult because um, for me, because these people were so well intended, and then they would go on the internet. I think it, it all kind of fits together with what we're talking about. They go on the internet and go, 
my son has a 3D printer. I'm going to print these masks and you nurse who's being told by the hospital you don't have enough equipment, I will give you one. And so they're, they're totally going around the system. Um, it's another sign that, that things are broken. Um, and I think uh, a sign that um, we want to take a pill and not change our behavior, mm-hmm. right? Mm-hmm. Uh, whether it's weight loss, and I'm guilty of that, or whether it's um, dealing with these kind of problems, we want to get a mask so we can go outside, not change our behavior so that we can get this thing under control and keep it isolated and trackable and maintainable so then we can go outside. You know, I think we need to, again, go back and look at that. But um, what we can do with 3D printing is make non-medical devices like shields. So a clear plastic thing that keeps basically spit and things off your face, right? So you got to wear an approved real N95 mask underneath that to keep from breathing the stuff in, but that physical barrier can be there. Or something as simple as one of the best designs I've seen is some kids have designed these little like trees so you don't have the mask, the elastic of the mask pulling on your ears all the time. You put it in this little piece of plastic you put on the back of your head. And I thought that was really clever and what a great way to help. So there are ways to do it. We, we just, you know, it's just frustrating. Yeah. I really am happy to hear what Eric said because I encountered a lot of people there I have this notion, we need to do something. We just have to do something. Mm-hmm. And so, uh, anything is better than nothing. But the level to a uh, threshold to be outside the nothing region is just very high, in particular for these viruses. I just like to mention this, maybe so people understand it. We're talking about three components on the personal protector. One is the material that needs to be able to capture the exposure, but it also needs to allow the person to breathe. The second part is the fit of the mask. So it needs to be fitted to the person. The third part is the user compliance with whatever device we have. If the user is not willing to accept the design, even if it's fitted, then we're not getting anywhere. And if the fit is not there, then the material doesn't matter. So all of these things, they need to come together and they're difficult to test. And that's where this problem comes in with what Eric said. The approval process is not a rubber stamp. It goes through a long testing and say, okay, this is where we're going to go there. And you clearly identified the face shields as a very smart and very good way of helping because as soon as an N95 gets wet, they usually work less. So keeping spit away from their faces is a really good solution. But it's just very difficult at this point. Um, and I've heard uh, anecdotally from some hospitals on the East Coast where nurses through connect, personal connections called me, they don't know what to do. And it's, it is just very difficult. Um, one hospital I've learned, they have uh, done the hard decision. They removed everyone out of the hospital who was need, not needed in urgent care and kept only COVID-19, the COVID-19 being open. Everything else was empty. And uh, so they have actually enough personnel now out of other units because they're just not doing anything in there. But uh, and they and they have developed the hot zones where they're trying to keep like people with uh, certain exposures in one zone so that they don't cross over. And so I think those are initiatives that we can do something about. But I'm applaud Eric um, to like really well how he described um, the situation from the manufacturing side. This is uh, Steve. I'd like to mention that uh, related to all this, the tech industry has really been spectacular in contributing 
both Intel and on Simi have provided um, uh, N95 masks. We have Honeywell who has set up a production line and is hiring 500 people to make PPEs uh, in accordance to the requirements. Uh, we have a manufacturer in Tucson, Universal uh, Avionics, that has made some of its manufacturing facilities available for making PPEs. So the, the tech industry has been anxious to participate, to help, to assist in, in any way possible, and uh, to do it in a way that's appropriate and uh, helpful and not some of the things that were discussed here today. You know, Eric, am I correct that you're actually working with a Banner on some sort of protective face mask? Yeah, we've been working with them, uh, as, as has ASU, quite heavily on um, the stuff that we can provide them with. So that's that's been a good experience in, in helping redesign. What we've been focusing on is redesigning a basic shield to be more comfortable for the people that are really working the long hours. So, yeah, it's it's been a great effort. Uh, just had a meeting earlier today talking about ASU's contribution to that. They've got basically all their printers around campus uh, fulfilling orders for shields and laser cutters cutting the plastic. And so it's a great example of how when people have to, they can come together and get stuff done. And that's it's it's really nice. And, and in a smart, like I think, like you said, Steve, the tech community is really kind of focused on doing it in a smart way. I'll, I'll even, I keep bringing up uh, one of my favorite efforts is what the folks at Fabric are doing. If you don't know it, it's an incubator for fashion, right? So not tech, right? Um, but uh, they have a lot of industrial sewing, sewing machines. And there are people in the, in the world, in, in the world of dealing with this uh, virus who, um, who need uh, fabric coverings of various kinds that they can't get. And so they worked, they, they worked with the tech community to find out what did they need to make FDA-approved uh, coverings? And where do they get the right material? And uh, a lot of people in the biotech community have really stepped up to help them, both financially and uh, with resources, so that they can help solve that part of the shortage problem. So I was very impressed by that. Another member is TGen. And TGen, it's known that they're working on uh, test kits What's not so well known is they're also working on a, on a vaccine. So uh, that kind of work is going on here. Uh, I'm sure there's tons of stuff going on at U of A, NAU, and ASU that we're not aware of, but this state is contributing in a very significant way. From a layperson's perspective, Eric, when you speak about fabric, I remember seeing Angela early on, you know, kind of warning and, and encouraging uh, those seamstresses at home, again, mm-hmm. like um, like Boris had said, people who want to do something and mm-hmm. they feel like something is better than nothing, from the very beginning, Fabric was saying, listen, there is a right way to do this. We have mm-hmm. to make sure we're researching it. Please don't just start, you know, sewing masks and thinking that you're going to be able to go out and shop and, you know, have those sleepovers and that sort of thing. And so as my friends were wanting to rise to the occasion, I was sending them, obviously, to Fabric and say, listen, you know, you need to connect with these folks so that we don't make the situation worse. So I would love to hear from you as well. Can we talk a little bit, um, if you would, please, about the risks associated with COVID as it relates to infections of the lungs? And and then again, share anything that you can based on what you've heard, uh, heard the other gentlemen speak to already? 
Yeah, I think one of the fascinating aspects is that we're seeing, you know, a lot of uh, geographic variation. Uh, it was mentioned earlier about how New Zealand has, uh, you know, small number of cases. Now, did they do something differently? Or are they inherently predisposed to being better protected? Is it something environmental or is it something biological? Those are all questions that are emerging. For example, what we know right now is who's susceptible to the lung infection is the elderly. And if you just plot it out, there's not much, you know, doubt uh, with regards to who are the ones who are at risk, you know, in terms of older individuals. There are some younger individuals that are highlighted. You see that in the news media. Um, but then there, there may be a race, ethnicity, or something that you can't see, something that could be genetic composition that may be predisposing them. And so we need to better understand as to who are the individuals that are susceptible. And a lot of conversation has gone on with regards to precision medicine, uh, you know, approaches. But so here, this is precision medicine live, that there are some people who are asymptomatic carriers, whereas, uh, you know, like typhoid Mary, whereas there are other individuals who have a vigorous reaction to the viral infection and succumb uh, to the virus. Why is that? So we really need to understand the science behind that. And there are researchers at the University of Arizona that we are helping that are looking at the effects of aging and the immunobiology of aging and why the immune response would be you know, more vigorous and more incapacitating in some individuals as opposed to the others. The other thing I wanted to highlight is, is that uh, if you look at the virus, if you look at the global pandemic map, uh, there are countries that are more susceptible in the temperate uh, zones as opposed to in warm and humid areas. Uh, they are relatively spared. So was it the behavior and the controls that was done at, uh, in New Zealand or were they inherently uh, in a better spot because, you know, they are in their summer and it's a landlocked, uh, you know, it's, I mean, it's not a landlocked uh, country. It is an island. And the humidity level is high. So humid, warm weather is against the virus. And so that would be some uh, factor in addition to the genetic, behavioral, and all of the other uh, determinants of who is going to develop this disease and who's not. So a lot of science needs to go into that because there are projections and mathematical modeling that suggest that just like the, the original SARS, this is the SARS-CoV-2 um, and therefore COVID-19, that there is an expectation that this would return. And so that's another reason for us to ramp up our capacity with everything from behavioral changes to personal protective equipment to uh, ventilators that we really need to not only solve the, the storm that we are in right now, but we need to put the ramparts up so that when the next storm comes, we'll be in a much better shape. And there's full expectation that this is going to return. So tell us about the new options for the ventilators that you're working on. Thanks for that, Kristen. Um, we actually have, uh, in, in five years ago, 2015, uh, we actually came up with a, a respiratory assist device, uh, uh, which is sort of a technical term for a ventilator that's not a full-fledged ventilator, but it's not just, uh, you know, just getting oxygen either. It's somewhere in, the, in, in, in between, but closer to the ventilator side. Uh, and what it does is it uh, helps ease the breathing um, of individuals who are in respiratory distress by using helium, which is one-seventh the density uh, of regular air. And because helium is very light, anybody who's inhaled air from, you know, helium from an air balloon and from a balloon and tried to speak, you know, they'll notice that the 
pitch of their tone of the voice goes up. And the reason for that is because it's less dense, the velocity of the air with the usual muscle force that we use to breathe out causes a higher jet of flow because it flows, you know, uh, that much more quickly out of our vocal cords and creates the high pitch. In the same manner, the idea is to use a combination of helium and oxygen or heliox to help with the breathing. And therefore, instead of applying the brute force of a ventilator that shoves air into the lungs, uh, we are using physics, uh, I mean, chemistry rather than physics to help with the breathing by making the density of the uh, breathing gas lighter so that it goes in and out more easily. And so we had done bench experiments to show that this can help improve the breathing. And originally, we were targeting patients with uh, COPD or chronic obstructive pulmonary disease where the lungs are diseased due to smoking and the air tubes are very narrow and floppy and to help the air flow through that so that they can breathe better. That was the original intention. But because the system is a self-contained system, in other words, no air that they breathe comes out of their mask, it recirculates with uh, a CO2 scrubber as well as a helium-oxygen admixture. And it's actually a low-pressure, low-flow system that actually is more comfortable for a patient to breathe. So we do think there is a, in the spectrum of disease, there is a population of patients with COVID that would benefit from that. So this is something that we had worked on on bench uh, studies using, uh, you know, uh, significant support from Tech Launch Arizona here at the University of Arizona to support our initiative. And, um, but just uh, right before COVID, um, you know, there is a uh, company that, you know, this is where I see that the, amount of technology prowess uh, in the state of Arizona is just amazing. And they identified this as a potential solution. And now we have major ventilator manufacturers approaching us about this technology. And in a science standpoint, not only is the helium gas helpful, but the lungs in patients with uh, COVID infection is uh, uniquely affected in the sense that it's almost like there are, it's a tree that you chop off of the trunk and you flip the tree upside down. And the trunk is essentially a windpipe or trachea, and all of the branches and little twigs and tiny twigs that come out of it until the very end, the leaves. The leaves is where the breathing happens. Interestingly, with the tree, the breathing that the tree does is happening at the leaf level. It's the same thing as the lungs, it's just that it's upside down. The helium allows the gas to go more quickly into the leaves or alveolar sacs, as we call it, which is at the very end, which is where, which is sort of the business end where the work happens of exchanging, taking in the oxygen from the air and putting out the carbon dioxide that we uh, make by burning calories and, you know, carbohydrates and fat. When that happens, when a ventilator is pushing air in, it pushes pressure into these alveolar sacs. And these alveolar sacs, for lack of a better description, are sitting on tiny, tiny garden hoses. And those tiny, tiny garden hoses that are covering these alveolar sacs, almost like a net are the alveolar capillaries, which is where the blood is streaming through. And in the alveolar sacs, the blood as it streams through these little tiny garden hoses, they're picking up the oxygen from the air inside of the alveolar sac and putting out their carbon dioxide. Now that's what's happening. COVID is not like any other pneumonia. COVID, if people know, based on autopsy findings in Italy, I have friends and colleagues in Italy and in China who shared with me some of the pathology findings. Some of them is getting into the published literature um, as well as New York, where we, you know, uh, have a discussion every Sunday night. Um, pulmonologists from all across the country get together on an hour and a half conversation as to how we are uh, trying to defeat this beast 
as we call it. And we find that this is not a simple regular pneumonia. This is very, very different. And in any given individual, early on, it looks more like a pneumonia. Later on, it is more of an inflammation. Earlier on, there's drowning happening where the fluid inside of these little tiny garden hoses is oozing fluid into the alveolar sacs, and it's actually drowning our own lungs. Now, if we apply pressure to that, it should be fine. It should push the fluid out, and it should help with the breathing and help improve the exchange of oxygen and carbon dioxide. However, in the latter part of the disease, and that may be different in different people, there are clots that are forming up in these little garden hoses. So the, the garden hoses are going also into spasm, just like a coronary spasm. We hear about how the blood vessel squeezes tight shut due to certain chemical changes that are occurring, we believe. And when this happens, when you shove and push air pressure with a ventilator, you're going to be almost akin to stepping on a garden hose. And you're going to clamp up the circulation even more and set the stage for even more clock formation. And so the advantage of our devices is that it is more gentle, it's more elegant, and it doesn't apply the pressure that allows the person to breathe on their own, on their own steam. At the same time, it helps with the fluidity of the gas, um, but um, goes along with the disease process because that's the New York experience is that they were intubating or putting patients on a ventilator by putting a tube down their throat and pushing air with the ventilator earlier on in the disease process because they were afraid conventional ways of ventilation may actually infect other healthcare workers and nurses and respiratory therapists and doctors. And so that's why they approach that process in that manner. But that may be hastening the disease process. On the other hand, if you use other conventional modalities, such as non-invasive ventilation, the patient would be benefited, but the healthcare workers would be more exposed. But uh, our device, we believe, finds a nice middle ground of adapting to the physiology of this disease process and protecting the patient from the harm of an invasive ventilator, whereas at the same time protecting the healthcare workers from potential spread of the uh, infection when they cough and sneeze by having a rebreather system that recirculates the air that people breathe, but scrubs it off the carbon dioxide so that the infection remains contained. Is the device currently available? Um, we are in a, in a rapid process of getting um, FDA uh, approval, uh, meaning uh, we, meaning the, the, the company that licensed uh, the technology. This technology is licensed. The patent that myself and a researcher had uh, filed five years ago. So U of A is the holder of the patent, and this company has licensed it from them, and they are in conversations with FDA to get the FDA approval and then going to production. And if I may um, just highlight one aspect, which is something that we need to look at, is this, that uh, the technology industry in Arizona has really come in to support such endeavors um, because we live in a time where, or we used to live in a time that we were very supply chain dependent. And there needs to be a conversation and a hard look at how these supply chains are working and how we need to be locally, you know, just like how we support the local farmer, we need to support local industries and technology. Definitely. You know, another area, and you guys may be able to talk to it more than I can, that seems to be really stepping up in Arizona is the diagnostics community. I know that especially in Tucson, it's quite robust. Are you aware of any activities they're doing on maybe detecting the antibodies or the virus itself? 
Yeah, the president, Robbins, has called for you know testing uh, for antibodies and for faculty and students. I believe the numbers uh, to the tune of forty-five thousand individuals with regards to how we're going to transition into reopening. And yes, uh, the University of Arizona has uh, created diagnostic kits that were donated to many institutions, healthcare institutions in the state uh, and city, for them to be able to quickly ramp up their capacity for testing. And Boris may be able to share more uh, on this matter. Uh, this on, on the testing side, I'm really not that familiar. Um, I'm. It's more on the like I'm dealing on the preventative, on the protective mm -hmm. side. Anything to not get it into the body. That's really how I see my mm -hmm. my side. I mirror this thing. This notion is supply. You may have heard about the discussion. 3M, American company. I've had an internal contact. Uh, asked them about their supply, and this was. So I can say this now. This was a couple of days afterwards, published in the New York Times. Mm -hmm. They're planning to uh, manufacture 2 billion N95 masks in 200 facilities. They're not all in the United States, but they are in other countries. Who is getting the masks? It's a big question. Right? Is this because it's an uh, American-owned company that the United States has first call on it? Or does it stay locally there? This is a key question. Um, we need to be prepared locally for events like this. And this may be expensive to deal with, and the payoff only happens very rarely. I mean, rarely speaking, I mean, the last SARS was 10 years ago, 12 years ago. So if you're looking at this outbreak time, maybe another 10 years. So we have to maintain a preparedness for 10 years and uh, to be ready for the situation like this. And this is um, financially and logistically difficult. N95s don't have, they have an expiry date, um, two years, and then their static filtration it's basically worn down. I do think this is, a, is one of the key questions. Um, we can't rely on others. We have to look out for ourselves in, in some way, but um, we obviously have to share, but I think there's um, local support and supply needed for the situations. Um, I do think, and I hope Saez uh, doesn't feel like that I step on his foot in any way, um, I have worked with uh, hospitals in the past, and um, I know people who working with hospitals from OSHA, from the worker side. And um, anecdotally, because we can't get the data, it's a high rate of uh, not awareness of working uh, with an OSHA legislation. I, think, I do think we need to really get hospitals, healthcare providers up to spec and very fast on what they need to do to protect their workforce. Nurses and doctors are very expensive and highly in need. We don't have a lot of them. We need to protect them. And there's a lot of support already there for legislative and procedures and equipment. And I think we need to tap into this as well. And then basically prepare for the next month. And I, I agree with Sai, this will happen. The question is when it will happen. Yeah, and it's a, that's a really good point about dealing with the safety issues. And, and I'll put a plug in for another local uh, Arizona tech company called Yellowbird. And they're basically, I hate using this term, but they're the Uber of, they're the Uber of experts in safety. So hopefully soon they'll have the ability for people that need to have experts come in and inspect and train their employees. Um, you know, hospitals need to do this first. It's much more rigorous and much more important. But like my company, at some point, uh, we're going we're gonna to have more people coming back in and we want to make sure they're safe. So, you know, technology companies can help solve those problems by providing an app 
Uh, that's basically what this is, is an app that lets people find the experts that are local, hire them very easily, have them come in and do their thing and make your place a safer place to work. There's a lot of different uh, places. Also, some of the telemedicine companies that are local have have stepped up. And I don't know that those stories are out yet or what the details are, but I think look look for how some of the local telemedicine companies have really stepped in to keep people safe that maybe have normal medical problems and don't want to get exposed by going into a hospital or, a, or an urgent care facility and using telemedicine to, to get diagnosed. I'd like to just mention that um, telehealth is obviously something that's being uh, widely used during this uh, pandemic. I did a, a consultation with my own doctor earlier this week, and I've talked to many other people. And, you know, why haven't we been doing that much longer than this? The Tech Council was very much involved in uh, clearing the way through uh, public policy activities for that to occur so that if you have a, a consult with a, a doctor, your insurance uh, over over the internet, your insurance covers that now where it didn't in the past. So I think that's going to be one of the new normals that uh, we're going to see as a result of this. And uh, hopefully that uh, spurs more innovation and more companies in the telehealth business here in Arizona. There's um, um, one idea that uh, I'd like to, I always like to propose, and I know it's uh, there's a lot of um, controversial ideas behind it. Uh, South Korea was very well prepared and uh, they never went really down to a, a quarantine shutdown. Uh, their approach was high-tech solutions, tracking every individual that's positive um, um, or infected. And the names um, of each individual with positive was public available with the idea that people would be tracked where they are with the devices. And um, they were basically limited to um, a certain area where they can move for two to three weeks and then uh, regularly tested by doctors and see how they're progressing and if they're healthy. And then at one point deemed to be non-dangerous for others anymore. So there's a, there were a software solution. And um, as a case, there was a visitor from outside uh, Korea that didn't follow the quarantine instructions. And they tracked down the person based on this app um, they're closed down every, uh, they're contacted every person. Uh, the person would then put in quarantine. Every vehicle, every public uh, place was disinfected. And so they were able to uh, immediately reduce the risk of further spreads. And their economy was operational uh, pretty much all the time. And they have a constant hovering of uh, very small numbers, but they um, deployed 3,000 epidemiologists and high-tech solutions to track everyone down. Of course, privacy rights are certainly a question, but obviously this doesn't have to be always the case, but the technology was a solution. And I could see an, in a technology park that we are considering these solutions as well. Maybe if you have a mix of capabilities, uh, identifying quickly somebody with tests, and then tracking them where they are if people are not inclined to follow quarantine instructions. This may also be a solution. Yeah, definitely agree. Taiwan, a very similar approach, um, and it's been been very effective. Um, yep. You know, and their their economy's up and running. Um, we that's that's one part of our supply chain that's not suffering right now. Yep. Sai, so, anything to add? I have a few questions before we round out uh, our conversation today, uh, f- specifically for Arizona Tech Council. But I'd love to hear from you as well around uh, what might be percolating in your brain and your thoughts as we 
we have this well-rounded conversation. Yeah, I wanted to say that, uh, you know, we're beginning to understand more about this disease. Um, you know, we cannot live in fear and uh, stay within our uh, homes and, uh, you know, not be able to do the stuff that we want to do. So a lot is happening, you know, uh, nationally and globally with uh, vaccine research that was alluded to earlier. A lot is going on with regards to precision medicine approaches, identifying who's at risk so that we can do a better job protecting them. And even if a vaccine were to become available, to give those individuals at risk the vaccine before giving it to others because we fully anticipate the thing is medications when we get once we get the infection one of the medications that can approach these various disease processes there's a lot of the ways of ventilation that we can actually do a better job ventilating uh, these individuals those are all emerging research areas in medicine uh, that's being tackled both uh, here at the university of arizona as well as uh, you know globally all right. Before we turn it to Arizona Tech Council and just talk a little bit about uh, where, you know, a little bit more around where Arizona Tech industry stands and how AZ Tech Council can best support us right now. Any other thoughts, lasting uh, things to share? Um, you know, I'll put a plug in for science and technology to, that we, we, it was, we, we need to pay more attention to it. Um, I, you know, we, 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 we ignore it at our own peril. And um, we just got slapped across the face. And again, we, we need to really take a look at how we got here when we get done. But I think somebody else said it. Don't, don't get your information off the Google. Get it from experts. You've heard both Boris and Sai really give some very useful information. And, and there's a lot of people that know what they're talking about. And that's who we should be listening to. We look at these other countries and the examples that Boris gave us as you were sharing, I can't help but think about, again, just the general lay people who would fight against that level of security is the, is the word I'm going to mm-hmm. use, right? Uh, you know, my rights are taken away and, and, and that sort of thing. And yet we've got to have plans in place to be able to know how to handle this all the way down the line, up and down the line. I think we just, we have to have the discussion. It doesn't like it doesn't mean that we're going down this road, but I think we really need to look at all of these different aspects that's been uh, deployed. So I didn't want to interrupt, say, but uh, so New Zealand, they were immediately going to a, what they call a level four a quarantine, and they they had a ninety five percent compliance. Um, so that's why they really very quickly uh, interrupted the outbreak. Um, but I think these this there's a question. Um, can we temporarily maybe eliminate personal rights? And it's not about the person anymore, it's about the others. Um, maybe not. And then what are we doing in, in these kind of situations, right? Um, maybe we're willing to accept uh, 100,000 debt in the United States as a price for personal rights. I think we need to have the discussion in all levels um, and just go through them and being open about what are the solutions and not saying it's bad right away to go one way or the other. Is it going to hurt us if you had for four weeks uh, a high quarantine and we basically don't give the virus any way to spread out further and it just dies down? Um, maybe the weather conditions here in Tucson will ho- protect us much further. That may be also something is the extreme dryness that we are, are going to experience. This, I'm hoping that's going to be helpful to us. Or we have somebody like Eric who can, we say, here are the specifications for X, Y, Z that what we need. 
Um, right now, there's very little personal protective equipment that we can put into a sterilization process in a hospital. I think if you had some equipment that could be run like any other medical equipment through an autoclave, this would definitely improve the um, the situation drastically. So then we can reuse equipment, but it doesn't really exist. And we need high-tech companies uh, to develop something. We basically then have the users, um, the medical health providers being willing, available, being able to use this type of equipment. We need to look out for them very much. And I think we, we just have to have really uh, uh, very difficult discussions around this topic in all different types of directions and saying, when, what is the solution that gets us the quickest out of these problems when we experience them? And what are the solutions that don't even let us to get them into them? Think, and some of the answers may not be convenient, but it doesn't mean they have to be always in place. So that's something I'd like to add. You're here. Steve, this for me is an exciting conversation because it's the thing that you and I have talked about previously on, on episodes as well as preparing for the AZ TechCast that we've got to have everybody across uh, the different verticals, the industries, education, uh, medicine, having uh, a collective conversation. And, and that's really, I think, what we look to here in Arizona uh, to you and the members of Arizona Tech Council. Can you speak a little bit ab about how you see uh, the AZ Tech Council's role right now with this, this new thing that we're being faced with? Thank you. Uh, one of the things that uh, we've been doing is trying to be a connector, uh, connecting our member companies who uh, have resources with uh, people in the community that uh, need resources and we've been doing uh, lots of that uh, matchmaking. We've also uh, turned uh, from having face-to-face -face events to having uh, virtual events, bringing the community together. Eric and I have actually um, hosted a couple of roundtables. We've got another one scheduled, uh, bringing the tech community together to have a conversation about uh, you know, what's working, what's not working. Um, we have uh, launched a laptop, a laptop drive amongst our members because 100,000 kids in Arizona don't have laptops. Uh, we're working with a recycling uh, company to support that. Uh, so we're trying to be there for our members um, and uh, address questions they have, uh, doing that through programming or directly and, uh, and being a connector. Uh, this program, uh, AZ TechCast, I think is uh, going to bring together some of our best minds in the state in science and technology. I think today's uh, program was indicative of that. Uh, I want to thank everyone who joined us today. Sai, Boris, uh, Eric, great job, great contribution. Uh, we'll be distributing this uh, to our members. Uh, Karen, it will go over her uh, radio station, and um, I can't thank PDT enough for being a uh, sponsor of today's event. Karen, you always do such a fabulous job. Thank you so much. We're always looking for anyone listening uh, for more guests, more sponsors. Just get in touch with us if you're interested at aztechcouncil.org. And again, I appreciate everyone contributing today, and I hope everyone has a Great rest of the week, and uh, we see you soon on the other side of COVID-19. Thank you. Thank, Thank you. you. Thank you all for being Thank here. You. Thank Again, you.
Today's AZ TechCast was brought to you by Phoenix Analysis and Design Technologies, also known as PADT, a globally recognized provider of numerical simulation, product development, and 3D printing. Thank you again for your generous support of the Arizona Tech Council's new podcast, AZ TechCast. As Steve mentioned, there are sponsorship opportunities available. So if you're interested in being a podcast participant or sponsor for the council's AZ TechCast, please do contact marketing at aztechcouncil.org to lock in your opportunity to further position you as a tech expert, influencer, and innovator. Some media leans left, some lean right, and we lean business. Until next time, it's Karen Nowicki. Thanks for listening. Mm-hmm.